It is indeed a pleasure to be with you this afternoon to share with you the Word of God and to be back here in Rock Hill to worship with you. Uh, I do miss this time together, but as I was talking to my family at lunch, I said I have forgotten how tired it made me. And so uh, by the time I would get home in the evenings uh, and uh, finally sit down, I usually had time for about 15 minutes of an Andy Griffith show, and then I was out. And uh, it's just the way it went. But it was a good tired and always enjoyed our time up here. And I'm so thankful to God for what God is doing here in Rock Hill and definitely thankful for Mark and Allie and their love for Christ and their love for this church. And uh, you are blessed to have them here. And I don't mean that lightly. Uh, there are very few churches that have the kind of commitment level that uh, you have here with Mark and Allie. So we're thankful for that. So what I'd like to do today is turn our attention to the book of James, James chapter 5. We are soon going to finish our study in this wonderful book in James 5. And um, we're considering the last few verses. And what I'm going to do is take three messages and squeeze them into one today. And we're going to be talking about help for the discouraged, help for the discouraged, James chapter 5 verse 13 through 18. Here's what the word of God says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit." Being a Christian can be one of the most exhilarating and exciting and encouraging lives to live. There are great mountaintop experiences as a Christian, and there's more joy in the Christian life than the world can possibly offer. And But from the moment you are saved and you have fully experienced the love of God in your life and how he has sent his son Jesus to die for you and to forgive you of all of your sin then you have understood what an incredible experience it is to be a believer. To know that you have eternal life and that what we experience here is simply temporary and that death is really the gateway into joy and everlasting life is profound. To have the light turned on and to see clearly for the first time what the whole meaning of life is and what the real purpose of life is, is really hard to comprehend. To read the scripture and now instead of it being a cold book of meaningless stories, but now it comes to life and the words leap off the pages and change your mind and your heart and your life about everything. To have relationships restored that once were fractured through hostility and unforgiveness is an added pleasure. To have a level of the love of God that you have never experienced now permeate your life and flow from you in all directions 
And now to see every person in light of eternity and to know that everyone has a eternal soul and to know that that soul will one day spend an eternity in heaven or hell is an amazing thing. And it changes everything. It changes everything. And I could wish that I could tell you today that that is the constant experience in a Christian life. But I can't. It's not always like that. For those who are new converts who have come to Christ, that that kind of an experience is usually at least a few months or a year or more in their early Christian life. But as they grow and life happens, the mountaintops often become valleys, dark valleys. We live in a fallen world, and as a result of that, it's very difficult to always remain positive and to always have an encouraging outlook on life. The Bible often describes the Christian life as a battle. It's a war, and it continues. Day and night, 24 hours a day, your enemy does not sleep, he does not slumber. He is very effective, and he works at trying to destroy you and your family and to minimize your motivation to serve Christ. I want to share with you just briefly a personal story that reflects the beginning of my ministry and it will give you a little insight on how God can take a very difficult situation, a very dark valley, and encourage you. Early in my ministry, before I had children, I was pastor of my first full-time church. I was coming in that pastorate on the heels of listening to literally thousands of sermons by John MacArthur. I had learned tools on preaching and exegesis and exposition and church polity and church governance from my professor, Dr. Richard Belcher, who is the founding professor and pastor of the church in which I pastor now. I found particular interest in the church, the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. I was concerned about godly leadership and raising up godly men for leadership, having been impacted by both my professor and MacArthur. Biblical authority and biblical church polity were central in my thinking at that time. What the roles of elders were and what they were to do and who they are and the roles of deacons. The mission of the church I had learned was evangelism when it would scatter. But when it came together, it was for edification and the exposition of the word of God and the worship through God's people. My heart at that time was filled with enthusiasm. I was thrilled at the opportunity with anticipation to lead and to pastor a church. I gave myself wholly to those things. I gave myself to learning and studying and preaching the word of God. I preached Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I had a Bible study with men in the church that would take them through a systematic theology with the full intention of raising up other men for leadership in the local assembly. That was the reason why I gave myself to those men so that they could become the future leadership of the church I was pastoring. Back then, at least at that time, nearly 35 years ago now, the church was operated primarily by women. And it wasn't because we didn't have any men, it was because the men didn't do anything. They wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't get involved. There were deacons that were appointed and voted into office, but they didn't do anything. They weren't spiritually minded at all. The most you could ever hear from them in a conversation was what had happened in the last football game or maybe what was going on on the last 
killing of a deer or something along those lines. It never had anything to do with the Bible. And if you introduced the Bible, you could see prevalent ignorance of Scripture. Angela and I were newly married at that time, four years into our marriage. I had a whole lot more energy then than I do now. And whenever Thursdays came, we had developed a ministry to reach out to our shut-ins and our widows in the church. That church was predominantly elderly. There was a lot of older people in that church. But there were a lot of people who had been forgotten. They had been uh, just eliminated from any participation in the church ministry because they were not able to come because of health reasons and they were shut in, as they would call them. Then there were many of our members who were actually part and members of nursing homes. But no one would come and talk to them and no one visited them. I had to track them down and ask people in the church, who are these people and where are they? I would learn sadly that many of them were left out of all the church functions and not communicated with at all. So my wife and I started a ministry on Thursdays where we would take the sermons of that Sunday. We would record them on cassette tapes. Now that's a way, ways back now, but cassette tapes. And we would purchase cassette tape players and we would take them to the shut-ins and the nursing homes and we would give them to the women and the men there that were members in our church and we would let them listen to the sermons and we would pray with them and we would talk with them and we would spend time with them. And they loved it. They loved every bit of it and looked forward to it. That was the highlight of their week that Thursday. I can remember coming home in the evenings, usually late, Angela and I would, and we were totally exhausted, having spent the day from morning all the way till evening visiting and visiting and visiting these elderly people. And then, of course, on Tuesday nights, that was the normal visitation night. You would go out and you would visit all the people who weren't coming to your church or those that may have visited your church, and you would make an effort to go out and talk to them, evangelize, call them back and invite them back to church. We took a map of the area before there were Google Maps. We pinned it up on the wall and we put a pin for every single member where they were located. We put a red pin where there were inactive members, people who were on the list, which by the way were hundreds. They were on the list that never came. And our goal was to visit each one of these people and to find out where they were, what they were doing, and why they weren't coming to church. Needless to say, God blessed the efforts. I mean, I don't believe because of the visitation, because frankly, we did not get a whole lot of response from that. But we did get response from teaching and preaching the word of God. We had families begin to show up from different places, and they were looking specifically for a church that taught the Bible. As a result of that, there were those that were coming and they were joining our church. I actually implemented at that time, for the first time, a membership application which someone asked me, since when do you apply for church membership? And I told them, since I became the pastor. That's since. Families started showing up and joining and becoming a very important part of the ministry. In fact, what used to be nothing as far as the Sunday school program is concerned became a vibrant Sunday school with lots of children and teachers that were new blood in the church. I was absolutely thrilled with it. God was blessing it. I was giving myself wholly to it. I was motivated even more to give myself to this small church. 
I was seeing God grow people, grow his saints in the word of God. They were learning profound things in scripture. I remember on one evening I preached in 1 Peter chapter 1 and I preached about the elect of God. I thought I was going to be thrown out. And afterward, one of the deacons there, one of the only spiritual deacons I had, told me, man, I came with my bucket and it is full and running over. And I preached for an hour and a half. That was good days. I was excited about what God was doing. We had new blood in the church. Some of the men that came at that church were now men who loved Christ and loved his word and were desirous of seeing all the things in God's word applied to the church. I couldn't be happier with what I saw. I thought it could not get any better. Well, the problem is, is I didn't understand that it could get a whole lot worse. And it did. It went south in a very, very bad way. Four years in, I had to address a lingering problem that was prominent in our church, and it had to do with deacons. What was going on in that congregation was this. It was congregationally governed, and what that means is it did not have elders. Everything that went on in the church, every decision that was made down to the smallest detail was voted on. Was voted on. If you wanted to move a chair from one side to the other side of the church, it was voted on. If you wanted to have a class, you voted on it. If people were put in positions, you voted on it. If they were deacons appointed, you voted on it. And so if you were a popular person and a well-liked person, you could become a deacon in that local assembly. It didn't matter whether or not you were spiritually mature or you desired the things of God or you had a godly life or you met the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. None of that mattered at all. All that mattered was whether or not you got enough votes for the office. Well, that was bad enough. But the more awkward problem and the more severe problem was this. Is that we not only voted on the active membership role, but we voted on the inactive membership role. In other words, you could become a deacon or a teacher in the church even if you were inactive in the church. Now, what did that mean? In the constitution of that church, inactive meant that you did not attend no more than two services a year, maybe Christmas and Easter, or you may not attend at all. That was inactive. So they were willing to put before the church people who did not come to the church only twice a year at the most, and most did not, to become deacons. I was told by one member of the church, if we vote him in, he will come. That was incredible to me. Not only was it unbiblical, it was ungodly and sinful. And I had a serious problem in my church. I knew enough, having been new to ministry, that I needed to give it some time. I needed to get into the church, be there for a while, establish some sense of leadership, let people know who I am and trust me. So four years in, I thought, this is the time. We need to address this problem. And all I desired to do was to change it just enough Turn that ship just a little bit toward the right direction to where we would at least be voting on the active membership role. Let's not vote on the people who don't come and make them officers in the church. Let's actually vote on the people who do come. At least that. Well, sadly, 
To my astonishment, it blew up in my face. There were more people unwilling to do what God's word said than willing to do it. I can remember standing out in the cemetery, which was adjacent to the church with a very dear friend of mine, weeping, wondering what in the world just happened. Because I had resigned, I was now unemployed, I had no direction, no money, no hope, didn't know what to do. Well, what also went on at that time, though, before that finally escalated to that climax was this. Through some circumstances, we found out about a conference that was going on in North Carolina. David and I had just become dear friends. And so we took off to North Carolina to a Bailey Smith evangelistic crusade. Now, some of you may not know that name, but he was a very popular evangelist at that time. And he would travel from church to church and also have crusades where the primary purpose was evangelism. And he would have his evangelistic conferences where the goal was to preach and to teach on the topic of evangelism, to encourage you, to motivate you, to train you in evangelism. Well, we had learned that John MacArthur was going to be there in North Carolina, so we decided to go. I went there for one reason. I did not care to hear Bailey Smith. I did not care anything about the evangelism training, the evangelism sermons, or whatever. I went for one reason and one reason only. I wanted to hear John MacArthur personally speak. We went. I was in the middle of some of the deepest, darkest, depressing days of my life. I was in the middle of fighting that problem at our church. I was seeing it spiral completely out of control. And I was wondering where all this was going. We went that day, and David can testify to this. John MacArthur stood up in that conference, which, as I said, was an evangelistic conference. Everything was to be about evangelism or the gospel or the preaching of the gospel or something along those lines. And John MacArthur preached on something totally different than the entire theme of the conference. He preached on, listen to this, perseverance in ministry. Now, that was exactly what I needed to hear that day. I mean, it was absolutely what I needed to hear that day. I still remember the text that he chose. It was in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 where it says this, and he, he read more and dealt with more, but this was one section of it. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engages in warfare, entangles himself into the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That message was just for me, more than you ever could know. I mean, my world was literally falling apart. And yet that message and what the word of God was shared in that day lifted me up and I began to see the need to fight and to keep on fighting the good fight. I didn't know till later after talking to John at another conference that Bailey Smith came to John after that conference and rebuked him from preaching that message. And told him also that he would not be ever invited back to the Bailey Smith Evangelistic Crusades. Because he didn't preach along the theme of that conference. But MacArthur said that it was what the Lord laid on his heart to preach. And he preached it. I don't know if I was the only man in that audience that day that needed that message. 
There probably were other pastors there that needed the same thing. But I can grant you, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, that's evidence of it. Because against the grain of what the conference was, John MacArthur was led to preach a sermon that was directly related to the incidents I needed. I needed that encouragement. I needed that to help me keep going. I had wondered at that time, whenever I was in the midst of that in that church, as to whether or not I was even cut out for ministry at all. I wasn't sure as to whether or not this was something I wanted to do. When everything you believed and everything you taught and everything you knew the Bible taught was literally turned on its heels. We had deacons meetings with men who did not believe the word of God, did not care to obey the word of God. In fact, I remember on one occasion speaking with one of the deacons that was later to become the chairman of the deacons. And he said this, I don't give a blankety blank what the Bible says. We believe what the constitution and the bylaws of this church say. I knew then that I was in serious trouble. But God in his great mercy gave me the necessary encouragement that I needed then to press on. My discouragement turned to determination. My sadness turned to soundness. My heart was now fixed on the captain of my soul. And to this day, nearly 30 days later, I still have a cassette tape of that message in the right hand side drawer of my desk. And I don't even need to listen to it. Whenever I get discouraged, I open the drawer and just look at the cassette. I know what it says. I know what it says. What I learned in that brief period of time in my early first pastorate was this. Ministry or the Christian life is a war. It is a war. If you haven't realized that yet, you might ask yourself just how committed are you? The Apostle Paul said these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God through the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In that one short section, you have the word war, weapons, strongholds, captivity, all of these are words of war. These are all words of war. Ephesians 6, 11, the apostle Paul concludes his letter to the church at Ephesus. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the evil schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, Stand. Stand. Listen, the enemy's real. He does not sleep. And he desires to destroy you. And he will do it with everything he has. But one of the main weapons he has in his arsenal is discouragement. You can paralyze a Christian with that. You can paralyze it. This time period of the holidays of Christmas is one of those time periods when most people deal with depression. I was interested to find out that suicide rates go down 47% during Christmas. But they go way up January 1st. Way up. If you live for any length of time on this planet, God has graced you with time, you have the battle scars to prove it. 
If you haven't had the battle scars, you will. If you are a Christian, you're living in the context of a world where you can be assaulted, you can be discouraged, you can be depressed, you can be very sad, because what we live in is a constant, constant battle. Constant battle. The reason I bring all of that up is the last section of James actually deals with helping those that are discouraged. Now this passage, most of the time you probably have read or heard it preached. People talk about dealing with the sick in the church and bringing the sick to the elders and the elders praying over the sick. And frankly, I have practiced that very thing. I have had sick people come to us. We have anointed them with oil. We have prayed over them to be healed. And we have believed that we were actually practicing this passage. But in my last study over the last couple of months, I am convinced that this passage has absolutely nothing to do with physical healing at all. And that it has nothing to do with physical sickness at all. But it has everything to do with mental and emotional discouragement. And I'll show you what I mean. Let's just pick it up to begin with in verse 13, the power of prayer and praise. That would be the first point, the power of prayer and praise. The question is posed in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? That's a present tense verb, which simply means it's an ongoing problem. Is anyone in you continually suffering or in that point of suffering right now? But the Greek word translated here, suffering, is a word kakapatheo. There's two words here, kakos, which is the word evil, and then the word patheo, which is the word that has to do with suffering or being afflicted by evil. That's the idea. It's not talking about so much being physically afflicted as it is being afflicted by the evil of the world. That's what's behind it. In fact, one commentator said it not so much is talking about the distressing situation as such, but the spiritual burden which that situation brings on you. Another commentator said, and a lexicon referred to this as, this word refers to the enduring evil treatment by people, not physical illness. Now, when you put it in the context of the book of James, James is written to the 12 tribes. These are Jewish people. They are under persecution already. By the time this is written around 50 something AD, Persecution is beginning to ramp up. Those that believe in Christ as a Jew, you're, you're excommunicated from the synagogue. Now that would be like you and I being excommunicated from our community. You lose everything. The synagogue was everything. Life revolved around the synagogue for an Orthodox Jew. And whenever you were excommunicated, that meant also that you were usually excommunicated from your family. Some Jews, even to this day, will have a funeral for someone who embraces Jesus Christ as Messiah. They will completely write their loved one off. So when someone was coming to Christ as a Jew, there already was a great deal of baggage of persecution that came with it. That's one of the reasons why in Hebrews, written to the Hebrews, right, that it tells us there that they were not to forsake the assembling of themselves together as the manner of some. It wasn't because they were lay, lazy and laying home and watching football games. That wasn't the reason why they weren't coming to church. They weren't coming to church because they could be persecuted intensely for their relationship with Jesus Christ. You could lose everything. 
So these believers that he's writing to, listen, are under the gun, if you will. They're under pressure. They're under persecution. At the very beginning of James, he starts off with, count it all joy, brothers, whenever you fall into various trials. And he wasn't even talking about just trials of life, like problems and difficulties at your job. or He's talking about the trials that come with being a Christian. Later on in chapter 5, he talks about how the rich would oppress the poor and take advantage of them. And they were suffering because they didn't have enough money, in their context, enough to make it to the next week. So these people were very discouraged, downcast, despondent. So he says in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering, having that affliction, that mental, emotional affliction of discouragement is the point behind it. What does he tell them to do? Notice what it says. This is very profound. It's three words. Let him pray. Now what's interesting is, is that usually in most contexts, even in the Christian church, this is our last resort. We usually go to someone, seek counsel, nothing wrong with that, or we used to be able to do this. We would go to the Christian bookstore and we would go to the self-help section, which was the most popular section of any Christian bookstore, and we would try to find something to help us with that, whatever it was. But what does James say? Listen, he doesn't even say read the Bible. He doesn't say memorize a verse. He says pray pray. One of the reasons why this is neglected so much is frankly, I don't believe we really believe in it. Do we? Our actions, if we were to contribute the evidence here and say, let's look at the evidence to see what we really believe in for our needs for discouragement. Is it prayer? I'm not sure I can say that. But that's what James tells us to do. Or let's back it up. Let's go a little deeper than that. This is what the Holy Spirit says for us to do. Let him pray. Very basic. Let him seek God. Let him petition God. Let him pray. We'll get into that a little more later. And then he even says this. Is anyone among you cheerful? That is, if you are, the Greek word means well in spirit, with a joyful attitude. Let him sing psalms. So there are two options here. You can pray if you're discouraged, and if you're doing well, sing. Nothing wrong with all of that, right? It's not good for you to hear me sing. It's good for you to hear David sing. I'll keep mine where, I, where it needs to stay, right in the shower, where it belongs. But I'll tell you what, it is clear that the, the Bible is abundantly clear on this, is that a joyful heart usually shows forth in sing. Did you know that one of the fruits of the evidence of the Spirit of God being in you and you being filled with the Spirit of God is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? If you are well in your soul and you have been able to see yourself clearly through your discouragement and God has blessed you with encouragement, then you're well walking forward, if you will, in this joy of the Lord. So he says two basic things. If anyone among you is suffering, that is suffering mentally and emotionally from the evil around you and the distressing situation, let him pray. If you're cheerful, that is well in spirit and have a joyful attitude, then sing. You know, that seems like that would be, that would sum up biblical counseling pretty good, right? Someone comes to you with a problem, they're discouraged, they're downcast. 
And so here you have it. Brother, pray. See you next week. That'd be nice, right? Wish it was that way. Verse 14, we pick it up there. He says, is anyone among you sick? So the first one, he says, suffering. Now the second time, he says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith or the prayer in faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. So reading that initially, looking at it, it sounds pretty clear that what he's talking about is physical illness. It is no doubt probably one of the most misunderstood and misapplied passages in all of the Bible. At first glance, it seems to be talking about sick believers that would call upon the elders to pray for them and that as a result of the prayer of the elders and the anointing of oil, that they would be healed and raised up from their evil, rather their sickness that they're suffering. But as I told you, what James has in view here in its context is not physical sickness. The Greek word translated here, sick, in verse 14, is the word astaneo. It is used uh, in the New Testament many times. It's used 18 times to refer to physical illness. Okay, so we give it that. 18 times it's used to refer to physical illness. But it needs to be noted also that 14 times it is used to refer to emotional or spiritual weakness. In fact, it's used that way in Acts 20, Romans 4, Romans 8, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 11, 12, and 13. All of those, except three of them, appear in the epistles of the other apostles. One specifically that we should take note of is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, where Paul describes the weakness that he experiences by the thorn in the flesh. And the weakness he's talking about there is not weakness because he has a physical suffering. The weakness is coming because he's discouraged because of the thorn in the flesh. Some have said the thorn in the flesh was an eye disease that Paul had, but really most likely it was the attempt by the false apostles of that day to discredit his ministry. He was under constant attack. Constant attack. He prayed to the Lord three times for God to take it away. And you remember the answer, right? God says, no, my grace, my unmerited favor toward you is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, that is in your discouragement, God is made strong. God is made strong. And in this text, the word athaneo means more of a weakness than a physical sickness as one author said this, James moves beyond physical suffering of believers to address specifically those who have become weak by their suffering. That's a critical difference. Weak by their suffering. The weak are those who have been defeated in the spiritual battle, who have lost the ability to endure the suffering. They are fallen spiritual warriors. They are exhausted, weary, depressed, defeated Christians. They have tried to draw on God's power through prayer and have lost motivation, even falling into sinful attitudes, having hit the bottom. They are not able to pray effectively on their own. In that condition, the spiritually weak need help from the spiritually strong. That's why he says to do what? Call for the elders of the church. And the elders are the pastors of the church. 
As is noted in all the New Testament letters, the word elder here refers to the pastors or the overseers of the church. It's a plural form, which means there's a plurality of godly leaders in the local assembly. These are the men that you would expect to be walking with the Lord at that time. They're the men that you would trust to have insight into God's word. They are those that, according to Acts chapter 6, would be those that have spent their time in prayer and the word. So they are those that you are to call. The word call is proskaleo. There's two words that you're familiar with, I'm sure. One of them is the word paraclete. We get the word Holy Spirit from that. In other words, that, that's what we call the Holy Spirit, the helper. The word paraclete or paracleo means to call alongside. You get the word para, alongside, parallel. So you have Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the paracleo, the one who is called alongside of us to help us and encourage us. But that's not this word. This word is proskaleo, which doesn't mean to call alongside. It means to call toward. And there's a reason why it's like that. I don't need you walking beside me. I need you in front of me and I need your help. That's what the idea is. You have a believer who's been through it and they are discouraged and defeated and they need someone else, if you will, like in Moses' case, to lift his hands up. And to hold the hands up. And this is what you have. It's like Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if any one of you is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. We need strong spiritual brothers and sisters to come alongside of the spiritually defeated and depressed. And help them. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. That as far as ministry goes, if you have someone who's depressed and discouraged in your ministry... That is a serious issue. And I'm not saying that it's something that you discipline. No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that spreads. It affects all of us. And we need to understand the one another's of the New Testament that whenever a brother is weak and suffering and weeping, we should come alongside of them. And we should encourage them here specifically. It's calling on the elders of the church to be the help here. This would be the ones you would expect to be able to pray effectively and to pray for you and to help you when you can't help yourself. But then it also says to anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, what's also interesting about this text going along the same line of it being a spiritual and emotional issue to be dealt with. The word translated here for anoint is the Greek word alipho, and it's the root form of the word to anoint. It's not used in the New Testament of ceremonial anointing. Okay, it's not used for that. It's used to refer to medicinal anointing, or uh, like Jesus, the, the woman uh, Mary put oil on his feet or the anointing of the head, or sometimes, frankly, in those days, oil was a big part of helping someone who had had a rough time physically. And they would be anointed with oil. And what's behind this is not a ceremonial anointing, but more of a encouraging anointing. The word actually means to rub with oil, to rub with oil. Like I told our church, I said, that doesn't mean that we're going to start a massage parlor here and everybody's going to get oil anointings and we're going to rub everybody down. 
That's not what we're talking about. What it is talking about in that context, whenever it is taught throughout the Old, the Old and the New Testament, that there was oftentimes whenever oils were used to anoint people, to rub people, to help them with their physical ailments. And even though not all the time the oil had any medicinal value, the fact that it was there to encourage people and to help them feel better that someone even cared. And so is the case here. You have this situation where the anointing of the oil means more than just a physical anointing, more than just a actual oil being applied, but more metaphorically it has the idea of helping that defeated believer by stimulating them, encouraging them, strengthening them, refreshing them to keep going. And you're doing it in the name of the Lord. That is in the context of the will of God, in the name of his desire for his people to be the kind of encouragement that we should be. I've often said this, I don't understand it, but we often get there. We get discouraged, we get despondent, we get depressed, but we shouldn't be there, should we? I mean, we are the most blessed people on this planet. As I said earlier, we should be encouraged because we have eternal life that started when we were born again. And whenever we die, it's just a gateway to open up heaven. We've been forgiven of all of our sins. Not one sin will be laid against us. The wrath of God will never come against you at all, ever. Why should we be discouraged? Well, one of the reasons why, frankly, is because you're in the battle. And you're getting attacked. You get attacked from with, without. You get attacked from within. You're battling all the temptations that are without. You're battling all those that want to cause you trouble in your life, even as a believer. And then you deal with the remaining element of sin that is always there. Always there. It even says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, for consider him, that is Christ, who endured such hostility from the sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. That would not need to be said if it wasn't possible. Because it does happen. Now he says in the text, if you come to the elders and you seek that help from them, it says, and the prayer in faith or of faith, in faith more likely, will restore or save the one who is sick. Now, it's not talking about salvation in the sense of forgiveness of sins. It's using the word sozo in the sense of deliverance. In other words, the prayer offered in faith by the elders for the spiritually discouraged will deliver the one who is sick or weary or fatigued. That same word translated there, sick, is used in Hebrews 12, 3, that is translated weary and discouraged. So it has that idea. And the word sozo does have the idea of deliver, to restore. It even says in that same text that God will raise him up. What does that mean? Raise up what? Raise him up from the physical bed of sickness? The Greek word agairo, to raise up, means to awaken or to cause to stand up. The root form of it means to get out of bed. And what I thought about often is that whenever you deal with someone who is depressed in their life, one of the places they love to stay is in bed. They don't like to get out and move and work and do what is needed in life. And the Bible says if you pray for that person who's weak and discouraged and encourage them that direction, 
God will raise them up. That is, awaken them, arouse them, encourage them, and they'll literally get up out of bed. So he talks about the power of prayer and the power of praise for discouraging hearts and souls. There's a second point I want to bring to your attention, and that's in verse 15 and following too. It's the place of forgiveness. The place of forgiveness. Look at verse 15. It says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, what is that talking about? And again, this is, we know we don't have a Catholic faith here, Roman Catholic I'm talking about, where we can go to a priest and our sins can be forgiven. That's not what he's talking about. And he's not talking about that sin is always related to physical sickness because we know that's not true, that physical sickness sometimes comes just simply because you're in a fallen world and not related to your disobedience. There are times in the Old and the New Testament, both Job and other people in the New Testament like Paul that experienced all kinds of problems and even illness, but not related to their sin. So what does he mean here? Why does he even bring this up? What's the point? If you're encouraging someone who has been discouraged and has been depressed because of their battles in the Christian life, and then it says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, in this context, you need to understand Spiritual defeat and discouragement can cause you to sin. Oh yeah, you bet. If you're in that situation, you can find yourself dealing with a whole lot of sin in your life. You say, well, what do I mean? Well, first of all, let me just give you an idea. If you're discouraged and depressed, sometimes you'll find yourself doing this. Murmuring, complaining, Grumbling, angry, full of anxiety and faithlessness, worry and a lack of trust in God, self-pity, self-centeredness, lazy, slothful, unfaithful in your responsibilities as a husband or a wife or a parent or an employee or an employer, just simply because you're discouraged and depressed, you can become drug dependent. You can become one who's finding yourself abusing substances, addiction, isolation, neglect of spiritual duties. Do I need to go any further? The list just goes on and on and on. And it's not so much that the discouragement is a result of the sin, but the discouragement can lead to this sin. More people in that context find themselves full of self-pity, anger, anxiety, and unfaithfulness in many areas of their life because of the discouragement. It can shut you down. It can shut you down. And so what James is saying is this, is if he has sinned and through the elders and those talking to him and counseling him and helping him and praying with him, there can be discernment of those sins and they can be confessed and forgiven. The assurance is not, look, this is not a, this is not a passage to condemn the person who is physically or rather emotionally and mentally suffering it's not to condemn them rather it is to encourage you to know that even in the midst of that kind of darkness you can be brought out of it and if you have sinned you will be forgiven you will be forgiven he broadens it a little further when he talks about therefore 
in verse 16, confess your sins to one another. This is broadening out now from the individual coming to the elders now to the whole congregation saying that it is healthy for you and I to confess our sins to one another. And this is not talking about you having an evil thought last night and you come to church and say, brother, guess what I just thought of last night? You're not going to believe it. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is those sins that need to be made public to your brother and sister. They could be sins that you have personally offended one another with, or they could be areas that you need help in, you need encouragement with, you're struggling with a particular sin, you're struggling with an attitude, or whatever it might be. And you come to that brother and sister and you homologeo is the word. It's actually with a preposition in front of it, ek homologeo, which means to confess and to make clear, to say the same thing about your sin that God does. Don't water it down. Don't make it something other than what it is. Don't disguise it in modern psychological terminology. Let's just call it what it is and confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed Spiritually healed, by the way, he's talking about here, as it is often used in the New Testament, even of our own sins being healed in Peter's words, and even Israel not being healed because of their lack of repentance, talking about their spiritual healing. By the way, I want to say something about this. This is so, so important for us to remind ourselves of, and you are already here, so I'm preaching to the choir but to those who may not come on a regular basis, you need to understand these kinds of things don't occur with your church being a TV screen. They don't occur that way. You have to get involved with one another. You have to know one another. You can't just be a pew sitter. You've gotta be someone who says, I'm gonna actively get involved in that person or that person's life. I'm going to be with them, talk to them, pray with them, encourage them. If you expect any of this to take place, which by the way, this is a command, confess your sins to one another. And then later he says, pray for one another. Both of those are commands. So if we're going to be obedient to these basic words in the Bible, you have to be involved in one another's life. That's one of the sad things about modern church. I mean, it's encouraged for people to participate in church from a distance. I'm not so sure that the live stream thing is a good idea. I'm really not. I'm thankful for it for our shut-ins and the people who are struggling with health issues and can't come. But too often, it's a crutch to say, well, I don't need to go. I don't have to go. I can watch it online. And listen, what you get online and what you get through a sermon being preached online is exactly what it is. It's a sermon preached online. It is not the body of Christ meeting together corporately to love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another. Those can't happen apart from a, a community of believers that spend great deals of time together. And that's what's so healthy about the early New Testament church. In the midst of their persecution, they spent, they met daily, by the way. Daily. I mean, I shared earlier about what I, what I used to do on a Sunday and a Wednesday, and I thought I was doing something. They met around the apostles' doctrine every day, prayer, fellowship, the breaking of bread, which would have included the Lord's Supper. That's one of the reasons why you have the verses that we often refer to about going to church. 
You know, you, when, when a pastor or a preacher wants to preach about going to church, they usually go to Hebrews 10, right? And they preach to everybody in church about going to church, but they're already there. But here's what the point is. Whenever he says this very important command, he says, let us, this is Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Now there's the first initial thing. We are to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Well, how do you do that? How does that happen? Next verse. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's the command. Let us consider one another. In other words, put the priority, I'm going to be with our people at the church so that I can do these things that God's called me to do in order to stir up love and good works. It should not be making a decision as to whether or not you're going to go to church because you're going to be comfortable or whether it's raining outside or whether the weather's good or whether you feel that great or whatever. It is this. I need to go because other people at the church depend on me being there. Because my presence there encourages them to keep on persevering in their faith. Verse 25 says that we are to do this by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Many people often use that as the command. That's not the command. The command is to consider one another. How do you consider one another? To stir up love and good works by not forsaking the assembly. That's how you do that. And like I said, if you think we're, we're doing something by meeting once or twice a week, we're not even close to the New Testament church. You put a church like this. Let's just take Grace Covenant. Let's put it in the context of intense persecution of the time period of 50 A.D. to 70 A.D. Let's just drop it in that slot where Nero is. What do you think is going to happen? Is everybody going to be floating around encouraged? Oh, it's great. Your grandma just got executed last week. This is wonderful. Doing good. No, 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 no. There's going to be a great, great need to be together. To get encouragement. To keep on going. Not to give in to the pressures of the culture. And not to let your faith waver. You give it your all. That's why it says in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The only way that works is if you're with them. Romans 15, 1, and it says this, and then uh, we then who are strong ought to bear the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, I read that earlier where it talks about if someone is overtaken in a trespass or a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in gentleness and then it says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore comfort one another and edify one another. These verses are all throughout the Bible and all throughout Scripture to help us to see the need to help us not be discouraged. It says in the text, as I told you in James, that if this is done, they will be healed as I told you, it doesn't necessarily refer to physical healing. Healing in Matthew 13, 15, it talks about the forgiveness of Israel's sins. Hebrews talks about uh, 
spiritual restoration. Peter uses it of us being healed from our sins. So there's a place for prayer to help with discouragement. There's a place for forgiveness of sins and confession of sins to one another, to encourage one another so that we deal with those things that weigh us down in our Christian life. But then there's one last point I want to make tonight, and that is the illustration given to us by James, and that is the prayer of Elijah. This is most fascinating, most fascinating. He begins at the middle of verse 16 by saying, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now you need to note something here. Notice what I did not say. It did not say the effective fervent prayer of a man avails much. It says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And the point is, is that he's talking about someone who's walking with God, who is obedient to his word, who is loving Christ. It is that person who has an effective prayer life. Literally, God listens to him. Like it says in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You remember what the previous verse was about? Confess your sins to one another. Deal with the sin issue. Let's get all that cleared out. Let's let's do with that first. And then let's go ahead and pray. James 4.3 talked about that these believers he was talking to, he says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask to consume it upon your own lust. That's a problem, right? Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Proverbs 28, 9, one who turns away his ear from the hearing of the law, even his prayer is an abomination. We need to remind ourselves of that. Listen, you know, we come to the Lord sometimes a little flimsy, a little casually, and we forget that we need to deal with those things in our heart that need to be addressed. As as I was an early Christian, I remember learning the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, to learn how to pray, right? ACTS meaning A, adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, S, supplication. The request came at the end. It started with adoring the Lord, worshiping the Lord, but then immediately into confession of sin, and then thanksgiving, and then supplication. That was very good early on in my Christian life to remind myself of that. James says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. It is powerful. It literally, in ergeo, works. It has energy. It works. And by the way, you know, you hear this often, prayer changes things. Prayer doesn't change anything. God changes things. Prayer is the means to get to God. And the only way that prayer gets to God is if the man or the woman praying is a righteous person. That's the only way it works. I remember a few years ago, y'all probably remember this because it snowed about six inches on near Christmas. And uh, I don't know, I was in a particular bad attitude or something. I don't remember what it was. So I knew I wasn't in the right attitude to pray. And I said to my daughter, who was very young, and very innocent then, I said, why don't you just pray because maybe the Lord will hear you for snow. And we got it a day late after Christmas, but we got six inches. And I thought, wow, what an example of God answering the prayer of a little girl who just had an innocent heart wanting to pray and ask God for snow for Christmas. You know, what's interesting about this illustration that he gives to us about Elijah is that James could have used many illustrations. I mean, the, the scripture is full of them. 
right? I mean, think about Joshua's prayer and the sun standing still in Joshua 10. Or Elisha and his prayer and the restoration of the life of the Shumanite woman's son. Or Hezekiah's prayer and the slaying of 185,000 Assyrians. Or even the prayer of the neighbor who was persistent in Luke 11. Or the persistent widow in Luke 18 who got an answer from the Lord. Or the answer received by the persevering Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. I mean, there are illustrations all throughout the Bible of people who persisted in prayer, who gave their heart to prayer, and God answered prayer. And so when James wants to use an illustration of prayer, he picks Elijah. Now, there is some understanding of that because Elijah was somewhat of a romanticized figure in the Jewish community. I mean, he was superhuman. If there ever was a person in the Jewish community that believed that was more than a man, they would say Elijah. Elijah's name is used 30 times in the New Testament. He's often referred to. In fact, you remember in Malachi chapter 4 or 5, it prophesies of the coming of, of Elijah before the Lord comes. And whenever John the Baptist showed up, what did they ask him? Are you? Are you Elijah? They were looking for Elijah. So Elijah is one of those figures that they would know well and they would understand exactly what kind of life he led and how God used that man. But notice what is said in the text, which is very important for all of us whenever it comes to praying in the context of being a discouraged and defeated believer. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You know what that means? He was just like us. He was just like us. According to uh, 1 Kings 17, he was hungry. According to 1 Kings chapter 19, he was depressed. I mean, he had problems in 1 Kings 19. He was afraid. I mean, he was no different. In fact, the word translated just like us, homo patheos. The word patheos is a word passion or emotion. And the word homo means same. He had the same emotions as we do. He was a man. He wasn't a superhuman spiritual creature that showed up and dropped out of heaven. But yet James uses him as a pattern for prayer. In fact, in this context where it says he prayed, it says in verse, uh, verse 18, it says, and when he prayed earnestly. In fact, the translation, literal translation of that is with prayer he prayed. With prayer he prayed. It repeats the word twice, prayer. With prayer he prayed. And the idea is not communicating the passion of his prayer or even the devotion of his prayer. It's not even really talking about in this context of what it says there about the righteousness of his prayer or the right use of words in his prayer. What it is talking about is this. Whenever he needed God and he needed the situation to change, he resorted to prayer. That's where he went. With prayer he prayed. He didn't go to the next self-help book. He didn't go to the prophet down the road. He didn't go anywhere else but to God, and he prayed. He knew that was where he needed to go. Now, then he uses the illustration that whenever he prayed, it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain on the earth, and it produced its fruit. Whenever I read that, I thought, well, that's, that's a powerful illustration of prayer. It's a wonderful illustration of how God answered prayer. 
I went back and reread the account in 1 Kings chapter 17, and I was astounded to remind myself that in the context of that event happening, within the three years after he had prayed and the heavens were shut off, two other monumental, powerful miracles occurred before the rain was turned back on. If you remember, the widow that he came to was just in starvation mode. It was a famine because there was no rain, right? There was no food. She had a little bit of oil. She had a little bit of uh, flour. And Elijah said, make me a cake with it. And she's like, okay, I'll make you a cake. We're all going to die. So I'll make a cake. You get some. I'll get a little bit. We're all going to die. It's over with. And Elijah said, oh, no, 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 no. The oil won't end and the flour won't end. And it didn't. God just was doing that miracle as he did in the Gospels, right? Where he's creating fish and loaves. He's doing it through Elijah and he's creating the flour constantly. I mean, doesn't he have to change the dish? He just keeps digging into it. And there's more and more and more. And the oil is the same. It never ends. Amazing miracle of sustenance provided by God, right? In a time of desperate need in the middle of a famine. But then there's one other miracle. In that same three and a half year period. The widow's son gets sick. And dies. And Elijah prays and raises him from the dead. And I thought, why in the world did not James refer to those? I mean, that's, those are powerful miracles. You're talking about physical healing? Man, raised from the dead, the, the widow's son. What about the sustenance and the food literally created by God? Those are tremendous examples of God's answer to prayer by the prophet Elijah. But instead of that, he just picks up the rain. Just the rain. I'm not minimizing it. I mean, to shut, out the, shut off the heavens is one thing, right? For three and a half years? There's a reason why Elijah, uh, the reason why James picked that example of Elijah, and that is this. Whenever rain doesn't come, and we don't have that example today, Whenever rain doesn't come from a very long time, guess what happens? Everything dries up. There's no fruit, no crops, no food. It all goes barren. You go three and a half years without rain, you're in serious trouble. Serious trouble. Everything becomes a parched, dry, cracked earth. That's what happens. And what better illustration of what happens to a soul whenever it does not have the blessing of God in its life. It becomes parched, dry, and listen to this, fruitless. Fruitless. A discouraged and defeated Christian doesn't produce fruit. They dry up. They dry up where they are. And they need the blessings of God literally to come in their life, and they need it to come through his people. And his people are what encourage him. And his illustration of the prayer here is not so much, hey, pray and get some rain or pray and stop some rain. His illustration is you go to God because he's the only one that can stop the famine. That's it. He's the only one. That's where you go if you want to be encouraged. I close with one passage and it's found over in Hebrews again. I love Hebrews. This was a letter written to Jews who were under persecution and needed encouragement desperately. Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn there, you can look at it. Since James is literally right next door to Hebrews. Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11. 
Hebrews 11 is the classic hero of faith passage, which in, you know, incorporates more than just they believed God and this happened and believed God and this happened. There is toward the end of that narrative, a list of people who endured hostility and persecution, being sawn in two and imprisoned and all of this stuff. So in other words, they are in a place where they could be deeply discouraged, deeply defeated, deeply troubled. And at the end of that passage, we pick up in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, therefore, based upon what we already know, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and this is not your grandma in heaven or anybody else you know who's in heaven, this cloud of witnesses are the people in Hebrews 11. They are our examples. He says, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run, that is run the race of the Christian life, with endurance, the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And why do we look to him? Because he set the example, right? It says, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, that is Christ, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you also become weary, here it is, and discouraged in your souls. Then he reminds us all, and we all need to be reminded of this. We have not yet resisted unto bloodshed, striving against sin. One last verse. Same chapter, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You ever felt that before? Like giving up, walking away, can't stand anymore, can't run the race, can't defeat the sin, can't fight the fight. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. There's your spiritual healing. I hope you're encouraged today to continue your walk with the Lord, no matter how discouraging this world may be. Because you have one who has walked before you, who has set the example for all of us, who was battered, abused, mutilated, and murdered for you so that you can have the kind of life that God desires for you to have with forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to God, and a righteousness that will carry you all the way into eternity forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement you give to us in it. I pray, God, for any person here today any believer here today who is going through a very difficult, dark season of their life, that you would use your word to encourage them, God. Help them, strengthen them. Help them, Lord, by raising them up, standing them up. And Lord God, I pray that you, by your spirit, who is with us today, our helper, the one who is our comforter, who comes alongside of us to encourage us and to motivate us, and to convict us. Lord, help us to walk the walk that you've called us to, to walk worthy of the calling of the gospel of Christ. 
Help us, Lord, to love you with everything we have, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we'll give you praise for it today. In Jesus' name, amen.